0: From the Advocate magazine, this is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters and today I'm talking to Travell Anderson. I like to think of this conversation as the LGBTQ state of the union for Hollywood. We talk a lot about why queer actors stay in the closet The fact that queer actors who are white have so far been able to navigate more successful careers than queer people of color. And we also talk about how you are able to like and enjoy a piece of art or a show and still critique it. That is something that can get lost with the internet sometimes. And then I just want to note that we kick off the conversation talking about the LA Times. At the time of this taping, Travel was a critic there. And as of this week, they are the brand new director of culture and entertainment at Out Magazine. So that is very exciting. All right, last thing, if you've not yet, please subscribe to the podcast. We have new interviews every week. When you subscribe and tell your friends, spread the word. It is a huge help to our show. So thank you for that. All right, without further ado, here's Travel. All right, let's get started. Mm-hmm. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you are an entertainment reporter at the LA Times. That's what they tell me, yes. As of now. <laughs> mm-hmm. You are black, queer, mm-hmm. gender nonconforming. You're young. You're kind of the exact
1: opposite of what I would expect for somebody in her role. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's been an experience um, as a result of that. I mean, I think... I often say that what we typically think of when we think of what a journalist looks like, I don't match that in any way, shape, or form. And so a lot of my work um, at the LA Times specifically has been kind of, I guess, redefining that um, and just just showing that there are different types of people, different lived experiences that can kind of, you know, come in and do this work.
0: Yeah. And then also there's like the opposite where that you wouldn't be who I expect to work at The Times, and I wouldn't expect The Times to cover content that features people that look like you. Mm-hmm. So you're helping with both those things, Yeah. Right?
1: So I started at The Times in, like about four years ago in a diversity fellowship program called METPRO, the Minority Editorial Training Program. Um, and unfortunately, it's kind of one of the only ways that we bring people of color, LGBTQ people, folks of diverse background into our newsroom. Um, and so... If you look at the the list of people who work at the LA Times, the majority of the folks of color came through this program. It's a program that's been in play for 30 plus some odd years, right? Um, and that's a problem because what that means is that we're not hiring people of color anywhere else, you know, uh, in terms of reporters, in terms of editors, in terms of folks on the mass head, um, And you've got to come to this program. And this program, because it's a diversity fellowship program, they pay us significantly less than all of our white counterparts. And so you're consistently at a disadvantage compared to your counterparts as you do If you do move up in the ranks at the paper, right? So how that kind of impacts me and the ways I've moved through this space is basically – I always knew that I was interested in doing coverage on LGBTQ communities and Black folks. Um, and when I started at The Times, I was originally—I should say—the program. You rotate through three different sections of the paper, and then you choose one of those three sections to stay in for the duration of the two-year program. My initial section that I was in was the Metro section, the local news section. I was interested in doing Black stories, LGBTQ stories, um, and. Then Long story short, I had an editor tell me that there weren't enough black people and there weren't enough LGBTQ people to have uh me do those stories. We had already had a black reporter, um a, a reporter who is black and who covered the black communities. Um That's Angel Jennings. She covers South LA. And then we had another reporter, a straight white woman who has three or four different beats, but West Hollywood was one of her beats. And so it was like she was the LGBTQ reporter. Um, and so I was told that I couldn't do it. Um So then – my next rotation was in the entertainment section, and they just seemed interested and open to the types of stories I was interested in doing. Um, and I decided to choose that section to kind of do the duration of my program in.
0: Wow. And so you're no longer in the fellowship, though, right? No.
1: It's a two-year program. I graduated or whatever, got hired out of the program. So I'm full-time. I was full-time then technically, um, but they treat us like you know glorified interns. Um, but now I'm, I guess- full-time staff, staff, whatever that means. So when you mention things um, that are, for lack of better words, problems, mm-hmm. and like how you make
0: less than your white counterparts, obviously you're not like spilling tea that they would be surprised about. I'm guessing like these are issues that they know about?
1: Oh yeah, so earlier this year, we as a company, um, the the newsroom, we unionized. So we voted to unionize. And so as part of the unionizing effort, um, the union did a study. Once they were able to get Pay information from the company. They did a study. Um, and that study, which is has been released, is on the internet all over the place, um, it basically said, not basically, it says that on average, the women and the people of color are making, you know, less than their white male counterparts, right? If that's public, I'm just surprised that it's they have not been shamed at fixing that. Well, I think it's one of those things where... The So I should say the L.A. Times was recently bought by a new owner, right? And so we had organized just before the sale went through. And so what we see now is that a lot of people are giving the new owner, Patrick Soon-Shang, and his team the benefit of the doubt um, because he's been around speaking very highly about the things that he's interested in doing, the investment he's interested in doing for the paper. We, we moved buildings. We're no longer at the historic L.A. Times building downtown. We're in this new – Location. You're not, the LA Times in is, not is not in LA anymore. The LA Times is not in LA. It is in El Segundo, um, right in the ass crack of LAX. Um, but, you know, he's spoken very highly about what he wants to do and the investment he wants to make in the paper. And that makes a lot of people very optimistic about the future.
0: I guess we'll see eventually. Maybe.
1: Maybe we won't see.
0: All right. Well, well, Tell me this. You yes. co- you focus on black queer films, and it's amazing that they have a black queer person to do that. However, I'm, I assume you also don't want to be pigeonholed in just black queer things that um films that involve your identity.
1: Um, I mean, I I, I respond to the question of pigeonholing probably pigeonholing probably a little different than most people, um, because like we don't. We don't say – so one of my colleagues, Amy Kaufman, who's a young white woman, she does a lot of reporting on, like, celebrity culture. She loves Ryan Gosling. She loves Jennifer Lawrence, all of those types. Um, And that's where, you know, a lot of her focus is. We don't say she's pigeonholed. But we will say that I'm pigeonholed because I report on the communities that look like me. But we don't say the same for white folks who do the same thing, right? Um. So I I just reject that kind of thinking. And I will say that I chose this for myself um, and I chose it because I knew that I could do these stories in ways that one, uh, uh, others can't, and two, my publication wasn't doing them at all before I started doing them. Um, That doesn't mean I can't write about white people or white movies. I do it all the time. Um, But what that does mean is that I know that these are the types of stories that aren't being told, um, and that I bring something, some type of uh, perspective and vantage to them when I'm telling them.
0: Right. And I think that, like, what I'm thinking about is, like, in terms of, like, the world of internet outrage, Mm -hmm. if it was a white person covering these black queer films, I think that there could be an internet outrage about that. Mm -hmm. And yet... In a perfect world, anybody can cover anything, but we're not, like, in a perfect world yet.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think what it is is that we – you want to get to the point where everyone can cover everything, but everyone has to have the the opportunity to cover everything. And what we see is that uh, black folks, queer folks, women – Uh, people of different religions, disabled folks don't have the same access that white men have, for example, right? And as a result, the conversation around these films, around these cultural productions ends up being funneled through one perspective, right? So we're having conversations in the industry right now about what can we do, particularly when it comes to entertainment reporting, to provide greater access to journalists and entertainment critics of diverse backgrounds so that when you see any movie that comes out, the film conversation around it can be well-rounded and fully nuanced it's not to say that white folks shouldn't be you know reviewing if beale street could talk or widows or some other or the hate you give Um, it's that they should be critiquing in addition to everybody else as well
0: gotcha yes so tell me this i have another frustration with critiques of current Pop culture, mm-hmm. because I feel like um, regarding LGBTQ specific re- representation, we have so few examples, mm-hmm. and so quite a lot of the content that comes out is historic, and we celebrate that, and we write about it as a historic artwork, and not whether or not it's good quality, mm-hmm. like the merits of the art itself. You know, there's been a lot this year. Yeah, <laughs> and I wonder how you like broach that.
1: I mean, I think it's the same thing. Like I think that a lot of uh, Black folks who are in the public have in terms of critiquing other Black work um, or, or work by other Black creatives in terms of, you know, you don't want to be the one person, you know, saying something negative about the hate you give when, you know, it's historic that we have a movie like this coming from a studio, right? Um, the way I take the whole responsibility is it's about having fully, well-rounded, nuanced conversations about everything, right? And so I can say that um, I really love Insecure and what Issa Rae is doing and, and that project on HBO, but I can also say that the way she um treats uh the gay character, her brother on that show is problematic and we don't know anything about him in the ways that we know as much about, you know, the core group. Right? I can I can have I can hold those two uh points about Insecure at the same time. So I think when it comes to queer work specifically, I think we also have to have to do that. We have to allow space for people to be like, yes. I love, you know, what, you know, the queer representation in A Star is Born, right? But we also have to let me say that, yes, there is queer representation, but Shangela and Willem are literally comedic relief, and queer people have always been comedic relief in these white people's stories, and so I'm over it. And I guess that I see a lot
0: of takes that are not nuanced, Mm -hmm. where they say Insecure doesn't do right by their gay character, and, like,
1: it's canceled. Right, right. But it's one of those things where, right— we, we we want, those of us who come from marginalized communities, unfortunately, the work that reflects us has to be everything to everyone, right? And so if you see a queer storyline or you see a Black storyline, you want it to hit all of the check, mar- check marks um, because we don't have a lot out there. Um, I think that's a disservice, though, to the work and to the creative because— It is not necessarily Issa Rae's responsibility to reflect my experience as a Black queer person. Um, I would love for it to be there. And I think the show hits on so many, many great things. Um, But ultimately, the goal is to get to a place where we have your Issa Rae's and your Justin Simeon's and your Lena Waves and your Donald Glover's and, you know, your and, 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 right? So that one's full consumption of art by black folks is a full accurate representative depiction of the black experience as a whole does that make sense
0: yeah absolutely there there's been so much such an explosion of work that has featured uh people of color and queer people um compared to before right Uh, like how uh, like i just don't think we're even close to like where it should be though or is that like my naivete you consume a lot more no, than no, me. No, 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 no.
1: I, th- I think you're right. I think, but I, I think... People will look at the success of all those names I just listed and yeah. say, "Yes, we're we're doing this." Oscar so white, it was solved. Is Hollywood is so diverse, right? Um, but there's always room for development and growth. And like when you look behind the scenes in Hollywood, there still is a lack of diversity. There still is a lack of representation on all fronts, right? It's still a whole lot of you know straight white men being given the opportunity to tell all of our stories. Um, and so there is still more work to be done, for sure. I thought about this a lot when Pose came out. Mm-hmm. To be honest, because a lot of the
0: articles encompassed its historic nature, and um, they did not. Um, I heard so many brilliant discussions about Pose mm-hmm. amongst friends and at happy hours, mm-hmm. and um, those takes were not as nuanced on in written pieces. And I have to assume that that is because there's like we're afraid of internet outrage, but also there is this like performative wokeness. And so for a show like that, you know, you can't say I didn't like it.
1: Yeah. I mean, to be clear, this, this disclaimer, I love the show. I think it's great. I think it's amazing. However, I'm also interested in the conversations that also note the necessary privileges that were in play that allowed that show to come to life in the first place. Yeah. Right? um
0: I, I i love the show too and i also think it's okay to like note the things about it that like it really irked me <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: yeah and you have to that but and because that's the ultimate goal that's where we want to be as a society when it comes to critiquing our cultural productions yeah. um is a, a place where you c- you can love something i can hate something and that's okay that's okay
0: with the pose example uh to be completely honest with you i was terrified to tweet about anything that was less than glowing mm-hmm. because i did not want to be labeled a bigot yeah and i just wonder how that translates to uh, critics like you who are writing for major papers
1: i don't i, th- I don't mm. i think you've got to be willing to you got to say what you what you feel right but it's got to be informed it, it can't just be a Like, okay, so I'm going to bring up an example. Um, Shortly after or during the Toronto International Film Festival, one of the films that premiered there was If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, One of the reviews that came out of that was written by this uh, guy who I believe is gay and white, if that wasn't uh, implied, um, at Variety. In which he, so he did two things that I took issue with. And so one of them is he used the word baby daddy to describe um, one of the kind of plot points of the movie. Uh, I should say, if Beale Street could talk is Barry Jenkins' follow-up to Moonlight, it's the first English language adaptation of James Baldwin. And so in describing kind of the setup for this movie, this, this white gay guy writes that, you know, the female character is trying to get her baby daddy out of jail. Hmm. Baby daddy. Interesting. Right. And then he goes on to talk about how he didn't like the movie, which fine, you, can, you don't have to like the movie. But he then begins to compare it to Alice Walker's, uh, to Steven Spielberg's adaptation of Alice Walker's The Color Purple. One, he misspells Alice Walker and he calls her Alice Waters. Um, they corrected that part, though. And, and so with that, right, we have this review. Not only do you have this white gay guy using baby daddy in a, in a context that is not necessary, Right, and and to be clear, I I'm a firm believer that anytime baby daddy is used, um, it's raced, um, and you're trying to say a particular thing when you use baby daddy, you could just say her baby's father, um, and we wouldn't have this issue. Okay, and then he also kind of uplifts this white man's adaptation of this black queer woman's story in a way of saying that that is a better uh. uh adaptation than this black man's adaptation of this black queer man's story it's a privileging and an uplifting of the white imagination and the white kind of uh, uh, uh what's the word how white people feel about black people um now there's no wrong there's nothing wrong with him feeling this way to be clear the problem is that he's writing this for variety Variety as one of the leading trade magazines, that review will go on to be one of the definitive reviews of If Beale Street Could Talk. When you don't have folks of color, queer people, folks of a, a variety of diverse backgrounds also contributing to the film criticism conversation, his, his review will go on to be the definitive review of If Beale Street Could Talk. That's the problem when it comes to film criticism, when it comes to uh, uh, people sharing their beliefs about a different thing. You can share them, but when your belief is the only one out there, then we've got a problem. Yes. I don't know how that relates to anything that you asked me, but I just went on that tangent because it was on my spirit.
0: I'm following and I got you. Okay. So kind of regarding that, but a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. You are very well loved by a lot of celebrities. Am I? Yeah. Um, Do you find that difficult to critique them when you know that they're a fan of yours?
1: No, uh, because I, I hope that they know that, you know, Travel's bringing the real, okay? And like, if your stuff ain't good, it ain't good. Or if you did some fucked up shit, you did some fucked up shit. Right? No one's perfect. No one's, you know, um, free from criticism in my book. Um, Because again, I think, I think, I truly think that that's what we all are trying to go for. We're trying to go for this space and this time when you can be able to like love somebody and also critique them. And I hope that these celebrities would respect me, respect others who are able to say, love you, love everything you do. But in this situation, you're an asshole. Do better next time. You know?
0: Yeah, and because the truth is, too, that if they were mad at you for this one thing, if it wasn't this thing, it was going to be another thing they'd be mad at you for. And
1: we're also not friends, to be clear. You know, we're also not friends. I have a job to do. You have a job to do. Yes, it's great when you build relationships with people, you know, in this industry after interviewing them over and over and stuff like that. But we're not friends. These people are not inviting me to their parties. I mean, well, some of them are, but they're not, you know, there's just an expectation there. I'm going to do my job.
0: Well, aren't you a little bit surprised by how much like shoulder rubbing there is between celebrities and journalists like you?
1: I'm I'm not, wait, not, not. Not an entertainment journalist. Not surprised
0: by it or not rubbing shoulders?
1: I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Thank you. Um, Both. I'm a homebody. I love staying home, okay? I do not like going to these entertainment events. I do not. I, I, I just don't. Um, that being said, it's a necessary part of the job, um, because a a lot of it is about maintaining relationships, building relationships, getting access so that you can get those great stories down the line, so that you can kind of build a, a professional familiarity with people in hopes that that translates to a better interview, a a more open interview the next time you sit down with that person. But I'm not your friend. And I think, I think they also know that, um, Yeah, they know that. Because it's just part of – it's part of the job, right? And part of the networking is, you know, you want to ingratiate yourself with these journalists who people say, you know, might be able to move the needle when it comes to conversation about your work. Um, But again, I'm not – I'm not going to be invited to any of these people's weddings. Right.
0: You know? Sometimes I'm surprised by – there are a lot of celebrities that are in the closet still, actually. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm, like, going to book somebody and I have to, like, sit down and think, like, wait, are they, like, publicly out? Right. Like, there's quite a few big stars that are, like, out to their friends and family. Mm -hmm. And part of me is, like, join the movement. Join our cause. Like, come out. And the other part of me has to really uh, seriously think that for an on-camera talent, it – I and I hate saying this. It seriously behooves their career to stay in the closet.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is what it is, and and particularly, I'll go a little further if that on camera talent is a person of color, right? What we see is that uh, white gay men and white gay women have been able to experience uh, a, a level of of success in the industry that a lot of black queer folks haven't been able to. You have your, you have some of your kind of. Uh, um, uh, exceptions to the rule right lee daniels um but he's behind the camera but he's behind the camera who, who in front of the camera has had i'm trying to think i mean Jesse smollett right now i guess yeah. a little
0: he hasn't had to get work after empire though right and i look at like matt bomer matt bomer exactly. came out and he doesn't hasn't had the career he could have had honestly you think so? Yeah. I think for somebody as attractive and talented as he is, I think the fact that he is an openly gay man has held back his career, to be completely honest.
1: Interesting. Because I, I, w- I would push back on that. And I would say I think folks like Matt Bomber, I think folks like Neil Patrick Harris, I think their brand of white queerness is, is – something that's easily digestible, Porsche Derassi. Uh uh and it's easy, easily digestible because what we know is that we've seen them all in roles after coming out where they're still playing straight. And like it's 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 generally seem to be okay, but we don't see openly queer people who have come come out who are of color being afforded the same ability. I can't think of anybody. Exactly. I, I also, I mean, I can see. I'm sure somebody exists. And Somebody, somewhere. But I
0: think it's very telling that we can't think of anybody and we're in the industry. right? I mean, I see gay actors who are playing straight and I see like wisps of queerness. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how many other people are picking that up. But more than that, I think that in this industry, we tell stories um, and now in every industry, be it politics, like white voters don't do this, black mm-hmm. voters don't do that. And I think that one of the stories that Hollywood tells itself is that um, a sh- straight woman doesn't want to connect to a gay actor in, mm-hmm. as a love interest. Right. And I don't know if that's
1: true or false. Well, I think, again, I think at the, think at the core, right, is it's like it's about good acting. Yeah. Right? And so – Maybe, maybe these queer folks just aren't good actors, right? And they just can't make it convincing that their love interest might be a woman. This is a joke, by the way, in case you can't hear the laughter in my voice. Um, (laughs) uh, um, But what we know is that on, on the whole, queer actors of all stripes haven't just been given the opportunity and the chance. Right, and so we don't really, we can't really say that you know, straight, quote unquote, straight audiences won't be able to attach themselves to a queer queer lead of any of any sort, whether they're in love with a a straight woman, a straight person, or whether they're in love with a queer person, because we haven't seen it on the whole. What we can say, however, though, is that all that is a lie and it's bullshit. Because right, when you look at the major audience for, say, a show like Noah's Ark, right, it was straight black church-going women who really loved and uplifted that show. When you look at a sh- look at Drag Race and yeah. the success of Drag Race, it's straight people who are uplifting that show. I mean, yes, we we in the community love that show and we're probably the, the very much core audience, but it's straight people, it's young kids of a variety of identities that are really loving that show. So what does that say about um, the potential impact of what this could mean for folks' careers in kind of mainstream Hollywood? Um, who knows? But a- as of now, no one's has yet to kind of take that gamble, quote-unquote gamble.
0: That's a great point because we need a, like, quote-unquote sacrifice. Right. Right? We need somebody to, like, because we... It's it's hard because we never know when somebody's being denied jobs mm-hmm. for that reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I feel like in 10 or 20 years, there's going to be these older celebrities who are A-listers who sort of come out, and you're like, oh, they were the leads of, like, major blockbusters for their entire lives, and they were gay. And I it's going to... We're going to have to question whether or not they could have still had that career when they're yeah. out. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think it was the way we look at the industry now, it's like it, I think we can unequivocally say, no, you can't have that career. The one queer person that se- who se- whose star seems to be kind of growing right now is Lena Waithe, right? She has always been out. Um, but – in particular, since she cut off her dreads, I feel like so many people have been even more attracted to the star that is Lena Waithe. Um, And I think that's a good sign. Um, but again, the majority of Lena's work is behind the scenes. People know her from Master of None and from the Emmy, um, but the majority, she doesn't do too... She's not doing too much stuff in, in front of the screen. She's not
0: pursuing that.
1: Um, right. Um, and even even her her... And the other roles that she has had when she was in Ready Player One, it wasn't really a role that had anything to do with a sexu- her sexuality or anything like that, right? Um, and, and she's
0: becoming one of the largest, like, content creators on TV yeah. with all the TV shows she's producing. it's like six or seven at this point. She's reaching into the territory of Greg Berlanti and Ryan Murphy mm-hmm. and Shonda Rhimes. Mm-hmm. And I find that so fascinating because three of those four names are queer.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's interesting to see again i'm a i'm a natural cynic um uh, I hope that things will continue to grow for her um uh, particularly because she's bringing in so many other uh Folks of color, black folks to be specific, also queer black folks with her. Um, she just finished shooting her pilot for her 20s, which stars a black queer woman. Um, she's working on so many other things. She's working on the Boomerang adaptation for BET. She's working on a show with uh, Kid Fury. Um, like She's doing so much. Um, and that's great and that's important. And I love that she's bringing other people in with her. Um, I want to see more of that. Um, and I also don't want the burden to be only on her. Yes. Uh, or only on her and Justin Simi and in the other and Benjamin Corey Jones, you know, I'm trying to think of other people. And that's another thing, right? All of them are in the same like circle. They're all friends. Which, um, which is, is fascinating. It's so amazing. It's so amazing. And I love them all. Um, but like there, there's so much, there's so much more, um, queer talent of all stripes, um, that is out there. So many stories that are out there that haven't been told. Um, so I'm interested in, in at least the, the inroads that, their work is doing for opening up other opportunities for other folks.
0: I agree. And too, when we look at like Ryan Murphy and like Greg Berlanti for two examples, Mm -hmm. Ryan Murphy creates very queer television shows. Mm -hmm. And that's amazing. And then looking at Greg Berlanti, he does all of TV superhero shows and a lot of other ones now. And there is a queer or trans person on every single one of those shows. And I also think that that is so important too, because those are shows that like Middle America is watching, right? Yeah, They're not going to watch looking. Not that Ryan Murphy did that. You know, but they're not not watching queer stuff a new normal yeah but they are watching the flash
1: yeah you know i'm and i'm I'm also interested in to that to that same point i wonder what the interactions are with because i don't i don't watch any of those shows i used to uh (laughs) so i don't know exactly in what ways identity is like part of the script and part of the storylines. Um, though I know that there are LGBTQP, uh, LGBTQ actors playing many of those roles. Um, and, and you know what? The vast majority of
0: those TV shows that Greg Berlanti does are cast by David Rapoport. Yeah. And he does not like have this rule specifically, but he primarily only casts queer people in queer roles and uh, trans people in trans roles. I love it. I love it too. I love it. And so I like when I give like him props for that.
1: Yes, give give them all their props that are due. <laughs> that does not mean I won't critique your work, Greg. Uh, <laughs> although I really loved uh, Love Simon. Just going to say that I cried in that too.
0: That was another movie that like I felt like we couldn't critique on paper.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, well, I critiqued the sh- not. Uh, did I do it on paper? Oh, maybe I didn't. I might have did it on Twitter. But, like, you know, just a, a quick thing.
0: I have such I, – I read
1: this year one,
0: something described as, like, a great gay novel. Um, I love reading. And I hated it so much. And I, like, opened up Twitter and my, like, thumbs are buzzing. And I was like, I don't need to, like, air a, like, dissent against mm-hmm. this great gay book. I just – I have such a problem critiquing queer
1: artists. Well, you know, and I think for me, I've, I've come to the realization that, like, sometimes I don't – you don't have to air your critique. Yeah. Um – and it's okay to, like, just keep your critique to yourself or not say nothing. So my default is if something comes out and Travelle doesn't like it, you won't hear Travelle talk about it, good or bad, right? Um, black, white, green, it don't matter. If I don't like it, I'm just not going to say anything about it. Um, and part of it is because you don't want to be part of a narrative of, like, quote, unquote, tearing something down, um, I don't know. I will say when it comes to A Star's Born, the internets are very upset with me. Like, I'm still getting mentions about me saying that, like, A Star's Born could have done more for its queer characters.
0: Right, which I love the movie and I'll agree with that.
1: I love the... the oh, I, I, I was about to say I love the movie on air, but that would be uh, a lie. I like it. It's fine.
0: And see, my perspective on pop culture is that I loved it, you didn't, and I don't care.
1: Right! <laughs> But that's the way it should be. Yeah, it that's is. That's the way it should be. It's like, you like it, I didn't like it. Cool, let's move on. What's next? What else are we going to watch?
0: Yes. Okay, tell me this. I, I, I said before that you're gender nonconforming. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know what pronouns
1: you use, actually. I answer to all pronouns. Um, pronouns mean very little to me. All I care about is that my name is spelled right on the check um get that apostrophe get that apostrophe okay because then the banks don't look me like I'm stupid when I go to cash it um but that's just that's just my personal thing there are a lot of people who are very serious about their pronouns and they want you to use that which they use themselves um and I support that and I uplift that um but for me for Travell Anderson um, it doesn't really matter. Not not today, at least. Great, you know. Well, it, you are allowed to it it change, change but if you want. For now, it doesn't matter to me.
0: Well, tell me this: you grew up in the South. You went to Morehouse, I did, an all male, historically black college. Uh-huh. Did you present this way there? I did not.
1: We all knew, you knew the answer to that. I did not know that. Um, no, I did not. I was not at this place. I, I tell people I, I was not as fabulous um, then as I am now. Um, but there were a group of students on my campus that. They were, they were called the Plastics, uh, Mean Girls reference, um, and it was a name that they were ironically given by some of the straight men on campus. Um, and it was this group of literally like five or six uh, queer and gender nonconforming students who, you know, they wore weaves, they got their nails done, makeup, dresses, all, all the whole bit. Um, and my freshman year, we, there was an article written by Vibe magazine called The Mean Girls of Morehouse. Um, And it became a national news story about this group of students on campus who were struggling to kind of survive um, because also during my freshman year, they instituted an appropriate attire policy, basically a dress code that said, um, in part, that uh, we were not allowed to wear women's clothing, anything associated with women's clothing.
0: Oh, so the plastics Um, was not a term of endearment. It was bullying.
1: It was, yes, it was bullying. But the group kind of flipped it on its head as we are queer as, as we queer people are known, known to do, and they kind of embraced it. Um, but yeah, the, the appropriate, I should also say, the dress code also said, in addition to us not being able to wear um, things associated with women's clothing, we also weren't supposed to sag our pants. We also weren't supposed to wear grills. We also weren't supposed to, also weren't supposed to um, wear hats in buildings. There were a lot of things we weren't supposed to do, but the only thing that was being enforced was the thing associated with the women's clothing. Um, and so there was a lot of, You can, as you can imagine on this, you know, historically black all-male college campus, um, a lot of conversations around that article, around these group of students, um, around whether or not that school could be a safe space for these types of students. Um, We spent the next few years, actually, maybe my entire four years fighting that. Uh, appropriate attire policy. Um, it, it is no longer in place. Um, they, I think finally did away with it shortly after I graduated a couple years ago, but yeah. So despite all that, you still call Morehouse
0: the nation's headquarters for black male excellence. Yes, it is. You still have like a good feeling about it.
1: I say this all the time, the, this, despite all the bullshit that I went through that other, uh, LGBTQ students at the school went through and go through, um, it still was a unique environment. It still is the the one environment that kind of, through the fire and through the foolishness, fashioned this, this personality that you see in front of you. Though the presentation might be different than what it was then. This is the personality that I've always had. Um, and it was a space that encouraged us as— uh, At the time, for the majority of us, black male-identified people to uh, kind of connect on deeper levels than just being black. Um, A lot of people look at HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, and they don't think that they're diverse spaces, um, but they actually are. Um, You just have to go deeper than just skin tone to think of diversity, right? We have so many students from a variety of different pockets of this country, from international. We have folks of a variety of socioeconomic status. You have folks across the entire, you know, queer and gender uh, spectrum. Um, You have Muslim students. And to be clear, we also do have white students as well. I mean, we only had like two when I was there. I think they got a couple more this year. (laughs) Um, There's like a direct connection between your description of Morehouse to your
0: also feelings out in Secure. It has some major issues with like sexuality and gender, yes. but like on the whole, you love it.
1: Well, you know, because that's the thing. We can have these. You know, I can be crit- crit- uh, critical of a space like Morehouse, and even now we're having conversations um, as an alumni body and as an institution about you know accepting trans students and what we do with trans students. To be clear, trans students have always existed at that institution. They've also always existed at our sister institution across the street, which is Spelman College, which is a historically black all-female institution. Um, now, you may not have excuse me, you may not have termed those students to be trans. They may not have openly identified as such, you know, but they've always been there because queer people have always been around in all of these communities. Um, and even despite the types of conversations we're having around these issues, um, it is the single space that made me able to deal with like a lot of the, the Prejudice, racist bullshit that I deal with today. Um, I say that when I went to Stanford for grad school, it was because of my experience at Morehouse that I was able to navigate the particular experiences that I was having at that institution. Um, and so I have to uplift uh, Morehouse. Uh, while also tearing it down every now and again um, in all conversations.
0: So, so what was it about your experience at Morehouse that allowed you to navigate Stanford? Like, what was that that you
1: learned? Morehouse teaches you, and I think HBCUs generally teach Black people um, how to kind of stand in their truth, stand in their identity, despite what the outside world may feel. Um, and so I had developed a personality. I had developed a, a way of being, a way of thinking, um, and I had developed confidence in that, Um, HBCUs are very much about ensuring that once you leave their campus as a black person um, or person of color for the folks of color that we have there as well, that you won't be kind of um, – uh, you won't bow your head when you see, you know, racism in your face or when you see people who don't have confidence in you or who don't think that you deserve to be in a particular spot or who think you only got into Stanford University because you were black. Right. And so affirmative action. Right. Um, who don't people who don't know kind of the the. The the credits that you bring with you into a space. Morehouse teaches you to be to 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 stand firm in who you are and to be able to move through spaces.
0: Wow, that's amazing. It's all right <laughs> <laughs> for people who are gender there mm-hmm. There is a perceived lack of anonymity that I see when you're just walking through the grocery store and you want to like find the perfect apple, but um, people are staring at you. Yeah. Uh, and that, um, like, I know that that's societal, you know, that's like how we're ingrained because gender nonconformity is like whack. Yeah. Not whack, it's, it's um, not what we expect. Right. How about that? What we're like trained to see in the world. And so like when I'm out with my friends who are nonconforming, I, it, it makes me sad. Like how many people are stare at them, to be honest with you. And I wonder if that's like, you have to deal with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think <coughs> I find more and more that my coping mechanism for all of that is I, I don't even realize it anymore. I'll be out in public with, with friends who aren't gender nonconforming and I guess people will be staring and they will say something or they will make a sound. And I'll be like, what are you talking about? Cause I just don't even, I'm just moving through the world and I'm a bad bitch. So everybody's going to stare regardless. Okay. That's how I see it. <laughs> um, but I mean, I do think that there is a, it is weird to people. Um, I think it is it is concerning, confusing. Um, they, you know, everybody, everybody likes labels and they like you to fit squarely within a particular label, man or woman, right? Yeah. If you're somewhere in between, it's just like, oh my God, you don't even have to be talking to this person. You can be passing them on the street and it's like, you know, what, what was that, right? It is the thought that often seems to, to come to people's minds. Um, but yeah, I... At this point I ignore it um because if I were to pay attention to everybody who's you know looking to me looking at me or trying to say something about me then like that's a lot of that's a lot of trauma to kind of uh uh, uh adhere to and kind of absorb every single day. Yes. How long have you presented like this? It's a good question. Um I'd say about 3 4 years or so maybe um shortly after I started at the LA Times. Okay. Um and it was just kind of a, a natural progression. I started, like, painting my nails in grad school, I think, uh, which would have been about five years ago. Um, and then I think I bought my first pair of heels about four or so years ago. Um, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. Great. Did any of those questions sound offensive? Uh, not to me. Okay that doesn't mean they won't be offensive to somebody else who is gender nonconforming, to be clear. Yeah, of course. But um, you're the only one that I can worry yeah. about right now. Okay, yeah. Okay, I'm just curious. No, I mean, it w- it's not offensive to me. And I also think that, you know, uh, unfortunately, as a person, quote unquote, in the public eye, um, I've become comfortable with, with questions that others might deem to be invasive or others might deem to be offensive. Um, and so that's why I just always put out the disclaimer that like, it's good with me, but that dummy is gonna be good with, you know, sister soldier down the street, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so and I think that's a that's a way that we have to we as individuals should approach gender and identity writ large, right? Is that, you know, what works for one person isn't necessarily going to work for another, even if they use the same terminology oh, yeah. to describe themselves. And it's because terminology and words and language mean different things to different people. And so we have to provide space for that.
0: Oh, and that's a great example of, too, of Trevel uses he, she, they. Right. And like, that's just Travel.
1: It's just me, goddammit, because these other motherfuckers will get you right together. So don't play. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, that's a great place to leave it on. Thank All you right. for being here. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Thank you. And that's our show. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe, rank us five stars, leave a comment. I ask for these things every week because they are so, 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 so important. Thank you to everyone who's done that. You can also sign up for our newsletter at lgbtqpodcast.com. That is a great way to stay to date on all of our live shows, all of our new episodes. So that's lgbtqpodcast.com. We are broadcasting from The Advocate Magazine studios in Los Angeles. The Advocate is the longest-running LGBT news magazine in the country. Special thank you to our old home, After Buzz TV, to Jason McMurdy, and everyone for listening. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week.